0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truett, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange.
1: I like um, the moral philosopher, the political philosopher John Rawls. In his work, A Theory of Justice, which was published um, in the early 1970s, he puts forward this uh, this theory of, of moral powers. He says that uh, everyone, everyone has two moral powers that are sacred, essentially, that cannot be violated uh, or should not be violated. And those moral powers, one, are the ability to pursue some conception of the good life, <laughs> however one defines that idiosyncratically, hmm. as long as it doesn't violate other people's pursuits of the good life, and two, um, the expectation of fair treatment and equal of um, justice legally and socially. That those are the two moral hmm. powers that that any just society needs to protect across its various um, portions and demographics.
2: And do right I wonder if any I guess- if any society does? I mean, it seems like injustice is kind of endemic to all systems that I can see. It seems
0: that way. I'm I'm affably disposed toward the concept of the good life, although I feel that some portion of our society, you know, is pursuing the good life on steroids, like there's some (laughs) hyper-accelerant that is at work, and that seems out of balance. The American dream.
2: I mean, what people call the American dream is basically having so much crap that you're destroying the uh, earth, you know, like that's, that's the, that's the basic desire of, you know, quintessential desire of people in this culture is to have a swimming pool, a huge house, oh. uh, three cars.
1: I just, I just read a great book. It just came out. It's called The History of More. Oh, yeah. It's it's, it's all. It's all about the um, culture of excess in, um, huh. in, in America. Um, it's a fascinating read. I learned that uh, every day more than one million animals are sacrificed, are killed to be eaten. Huh. It's either every day or every hour. It's some ungodly number in the mm. United States. And each chapter is devoted to a different category of excess.
2: Mm.
1: It well, it's me not
2: me my fault, those room. animals. They uh I have no moral culpability for them since I'm a real vegetarian.
0: Nice. So this quote seems to be apropos of what we're going through now, and and we've sort of dealt with the rights issue. I, I just feel that Lafayette is is really reaching out to us now and mm. really underscoring the fact that it's our duty to protest against this violation, you know, this violation of human rights, of our rights, of humanity.
2: I mean, I've been worrying a lot about the American Revolution, thinking about it and thinking, because my friend Josie, who's a psychoanalyst, and I sort of both kind of independently came to this theory that it was a mistake for the U.S. I don't like to call it America, if I can avoid it. Uh, for the U.S. to start with a revolution because um, it was a kind of a violent um, break that, you know, it just seems like the Canadians, for example, just seem so much more sane than the Americans, and it's like something about starting with this violent revolution and this idea—if anybody steps on our rights, we can, uh, we have, a, we have to uh, start a war against them. That is where the Civil War came right out of that. And I'm kind of obsessed with these, like, white nationalist uh, fascists who are trying to start a race war now and also fighting the cops. Some of them will just, like, grab an AK-47 and just, like, run at a cop and shoot at them, you know? And they are definitely protecting their rights exactly as, according to that quote of uh, Lafayette's, in their mind, what they see is the government is, uh, you know, infringing some kind of rights that they have, the rights to a good life that involves some very white uh, subculture that they want to maintain. And and I just think it's like a recipe for endless uh, bloodshed, this concept of uh, that everyone has a right to a revolution to protect their rights. And who defines their rights? They do. <clears throat> There's no mm-hmm. there's no objective uh, definition.
0: Well, the, yeah, I, th- I think it, it's an interesting point and actually something I did sort of think we needed to nail down a little bit more. And it seems to me that once you've established a constituent representation and begun to lay down laws, that the people's rights are a matter of law. And if the Mm. law is violated by the government, I believe that's what, you know, that's how I'm reading it. You know, that human rights, that the people's rights have a boundary. But the one thing I would say in response to what you're saying, Sparrow, is I believe that the American Revolution is still going on, that, Mm. you know, you would say United States Revolution. But I, I think more optimistically about the american revolution that includes mm. canada as well as central and south america mm. we are a revolutionary people you know across this longitudinal line and that we're still in the revolution and we're still growing we're still flowering you know and then that, mm. that now we're going through a period of growth and a period of potentiality, which I hope will result in all of us living in semi-autonomous enclaves um, mm-hmm. connected through, you know, through the promise of the internet, the, you know, promise of the NOS, you know, encircling the planet, but living nevertheless within our particular biospheres and, you know, evolving locally. That'd be my you know, hmm. vision hmm. Hmm. of the like possibility of this moment. Yeah.
1: I was just going to mention, it, you know, just how pervasive Lafayette's name is. Um, I did a, a Google search and found out that there are 36 towns or cities named huh. after Lafayette in the United States. That doesn't include city squares and parks and streets.
2: The number I had was 44 cities and counties. 44 so cities and counties. This wow. one's also including the counties. That's and then also, there's a Lafayette Square in L.A., which I think is kind yeah. of interesting that, like, the memory of Lafayette, you know, reached 3,000 miles across to L.A.
0: That is totally fantastic, yeah, particularly with California only sort of kicking in after 49. How many uh, Washingtons are there, though? Did the did the son outstrip the father? <laughs>
2: I did read a book called Washington Man and Monument that began with the the enumeration of how many Washingtons there were. As I recall, it was something like 53, but I really am not sure.
1: If you're talking only place names in the U.S., 241 townships in the United States named Washington and 26 cities, one borough and one village, two villages and one borough named Washingtonville. 15 mountains, one town, one city, and four
2: neighborhoods named Mount Washington. And uh, Fort Washington Avenue. I mean, uh, Washington Heights, where I used to live in the 80s.
0: So, I mean, uh, the one thing that is sort of a, um, or, you know, I would characterize as sort of a sad note relative to Lafayette is that the beginning of this biography of lafayette that i heard she'd gone to versailles and there's only one there was only one bust of lafayette and it was in a closet (laughs) at versailles in other words lafayette is really like wallpapered over in france
2: oh and he's buried under soil from bunker hill he's buried in paris i think but there's a little bit of bunker hill soil
0: there Hey, so Sparrow, so what do you got to say, brother? Okay, well, Lafayette
2: Street in New York City originally bought as a real estate speculation by John Jacob Astor in 1804, and part of it was leased to a Frenchman named Joseph Delacroix, who created a popular resort called Vauxhall Gardens, after a famous resort on the edge of London, Hmm. when, when the... Lease for that expired in 1825. Astor cut a new street down the middle of his land and called it uh, Lafayette Place because, it's remember, it's 1825, and that was Mm. just the year before that Lafayette made his triumphant uh, visit to the U.S., where he visited every state. I forget how many states. 30? 23? And then these um, Greek revival houses were built on Lafayette, what's now Lafayette Street, then maybe Lafayette, Lafayette Place, in 1833. And four of them are still there huh. in These, like, uh, gorgeous, it's uh, called Colonnade Row, these Corinthian columns. So, uh, you know, just for me, as a New Yorker, I'm interested in Lafayette as a street. Oh, and then here is a quote. I think from that weird documentary I watched last week uh, on YouTube, unlike everyone else who fought in the war, Lafayette stood to gain nothing economically or politically.
0: It's very true that Lafayette put his fortune, almost the entirety of his fortune, and you know, later on after the institution of the, I guess the Paris commune, et cetera, et etc. Um, you know, he was destitute. He had no money. But he gave tremendously from what resources he had to the revolution. Absolutely.
1: Well, I think we should take, pause for a moment and point out that it's possible to argue that that's um, absent at the present moment. You know, to what degree are, are the power elite, in, you know, the corporate elite, the the economically privileged, involved in the, the present uprisings? I work for them. Um, <laughs> And uh, I'm an employee and have been for the better part of my professional life. And my sense is that there's a lot of um, intellectual virtue and virtue signaling. But one thing I noticed during the pandemic is that the folks who could fled the city immediately
2: Mm -hmm. and
1: have been talking about community and public virtue from a thousand miles away. (laughs) Zooming it in. I'm painting with broad brushstrokes, but it's interesting.
0: Yeah. Are they, are these, is this constituent, are they putting down any money toward the revolution? Not that I'm aware of. Right. Most people who could fled. Maybe I would too. I don't know if I had
1: an opportunity to do so. I'm not passing judgment. I just did. Yeah. But I'm doing right now. But it is interesting to think about someone who didn't really have an immediate dog in the fight investing his riches. And um, sacrificing his life for this this cause.
0: Yeah, one thing we didn't talk about is that there had been a military reform just as Lafayette was coming up that blocked the path of the nobility toward oh. rising in the military. You know, with like jet, you know, being able to rise in the military um, simply because of their Social position. Really? Um, Yeah. And that caused Lafayette to realize, oh, I can't do it through the conventional means. And therefore, I should leave France and go to these some go go west. Yeah. But But it's interesting that these cats who you work with, Andrew, that are sitting on a billion dollars or 500 million, blah, 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 they're choosing not to deploy their fortune toward buttressing a horizon in which human beings as a species in relative equanimity may survive. Yeah, I
1: didn't know him well. But I had a few interactions with Pete Seeger because oh. we lived in the Hudson Valley together. And my mom was involved with the Clearwater organization. And as a child, Pete Seeger said, you know what the trouble is moving into the future in America, don't you? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, we live in an age of private wealth and public squalor.
2: <sighs> That's good.
1: And I thought. That's, that's stuck with me ever since, and that's really what I'm getting after in terms hmm. of my employment experience is that even um, liberal, open people who I respect and deem virtuous, if they're able to, they, 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 they have fled. And the right things will be said, but I don't get the sense that there is a deep investment in public life.
0: Hmm. civic
1: health at least that i'm not seeing it it might be happening behind the scenes i guess i'm playing fast and loose here
0: i mean i guess the one thing i would say is that it seems pretty clear at this juncture that due to the environment kind of environmental degradations that um this system that we're operating under right now you know Neoliberalism, corporate capitalism, et cetera, et cetera, is some um, cannibalizing itself, and that we're yes. destroying the Earth, and that you know we're facing the Anthropocene, you know, and scientifically, et cetera, et cetera. It's it's beyond doubt that the path on which we are headed is toward extinction, and so it's interesting to me. To hear that some of these cats that are sitting on fortunes, you know, are unwilling to recognize that, the reality of the precarious state that we're in now. Well, maybe they are.
2: If they if they think it's hopeless, why not hold on to the money? I mean, it's only if there's Uh hope that uh, that you should spend your money. You know, if everybody's thinking, well, everything's screwed. I mean, I don't know if you could blame people. For leaving the city during a plague, if they have the means to do so. I mean, no, I, you know, I, I don't blame,
1: I don't blame them for that.
2: I mean, if they, if they could stay and do something, I don't know what, positive by staying. I mean, mostly you're just uh, sitting in your apartment if you're staying. It's not like you're, you know, whatever, uh, helping the poor.
1: <clears throat> you know that Leonard Cohen line, no, nobody cares if the people live or die. There's an element of that in what I'm trying to express. Yeah. I would probably leave too, but I don't know. Increasingly, I feel people live cloistered. If you can, you live a cloistered life in a gated community. You separate yourself from from the masses. I see so much of that in my own life. I don't know.
2: You mean among the people you work with? I work
1: for, yeah, I would say. I don't want to name names. And there are exceptions, of course. I mean, I see
2: it as a whole kind of psychological issue because I think a lot of them become germphobes, at least in a kind of um, uh, unconscious way. You know, like you can't really go to a working class person's house because it's too dirty for you. And you you have to live in this world where everybody everybody uses this bacteriological soap and everything mm-hmm. is like super clean. And you just, and then when you travel, you go to a hotel that's like that, and you just live your whole life in this kind of what's the word, you know, sanitized, effete, aesthetic world. You know, it's you don't even know you're there. You're, you're everybody does it. Everybody seeks out their own class element. I tend to have friends that grew up in the lower middle class, like, like. I you know your people are drawn to their own they're comfortable with their own little cultures subcultures you know? I think that's definitely true I mean it's it is kind of horrible particularly as everything gets so polarized with uh, economically so there's really kind of like two countries living one serving the other I mean it's yeah
1: I think increasingly there are two classes there are working people and then there's the financial managerial class. Yeah. Two economies, two classes. Increasing, I guess the evisceration of the middle class has been going on for a while now.
2: I mean, up here it's kind of different. Here in the Catskills, you know, it's there may be that, but you can't. It doesn't look like that. It kind of looks like a classless society where everybody's sort of poor.
0: So Sparrow, what other insights did she want to impart? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to
2: quote this uh, comment under that YouTube video I keep talking about that I watched. It's the first comment. It's the biggest, most successful comment, which was by someone named Simone O'Neill three years ago. Everyone give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman. And I think it got something like 369 likes. And you really don't think of the French as very uh, combative, you know it's not your image of at this point. you don't think of like that's the thing about the French. they love war, you know they love to fight a good fight and mm. you know the that world that Lafayette was in of heroic soldiers that kind of culminated in uh, Napoleon who conquered europe was is a kind of a different it's a different friend France than. Uh, it's a different kind of Frenchman than we uh, think of now.
0: Well, I mean, it's not the Frenchman that was operative in Algiers, for example. What do you mean? Well, I mean, the French were brutal, systematic, yeah, and ha- very violent against mm. the um, native people and, and in, in Vietnam. The, and yeah. in, in the, the war things. that we inherited. Yeah, and you have to remember the French, you know, with whom you know, I, I share like Intimate bonds. Uh, nevertheless, you know, they're the Gauls, um, oh, yeah. you know, of whom Caesar wrote in great praise and also of great fear of their ferocity. Right, they conquered Rome.
2: You
1: yeah. know what I'm thinking about suddenly? Uh, there's some interesting parallels Lafayette <laughs> yeah. and Alexis uh, de Tocqueville. Right. Um, de Tocqueville came a little bit later, a few decades later, but both of them were born into noble, aristocratic families. Traveled to the United States, traveled to the um, early republic for edification, um, then returned to France with a new perspective. Um, I wonder if uh, de Tocqueville was inspired by the story of Lafayette. Huh. I'm, sure he was. I'm sure he was. When was, was Lafayette's he... return again, Sparrow? What date was that? That was
0: uh, 24, 1825. Yeah. Huh. So it was shortly thereafter, Tocqueville was. Yeah, and uh, de Tocqueville is Lafayette.
2: 1831. I just looked it up. Yeah. Isn't that and
0: interesting? Yeah.
2: yeah. Do you so know I've why so
1: he came? De Tocqueville came... Maybe we to discussed study prisons.
2: Yeah, to yeah, study penology. He system. was the, uh, what do you call him, uh, uh, Foucault of his era. You know how Foucault has this obsession with uh, prison
1: Discipline and punish, right? The docile body. Yeah, so De came...
2: Night. Yeah, he was only here one year, or I don't know how long all within 1831 that he published his book, which I think is called Democracy in America in 1835. Mm
0: -hmm. But, you know, with de Tocqueville, you know, Lafayette had a distinguished later life, you know, admittedly um, sometimes not necessarily to his benefit. But uh, de Tocqueville, what was his later life like? I've read... He wrote
2: another book that no one ever reads. Volume two? And I think
0: Democracy in
2: America is so long... I've been kind of looking around. I found a copy, an abridged copy on the street in Brooklyn fairly recently. So I kind of opened it and looked through it, and it's it's not that helpful to read in excerpts. (laughs) Only parts of it are really great really fun to read.
1: I taught from it last year. Yeah, I taught for an excerpt on um, the importance of public spaces, municipal spaces as quintessentially American, mm. a central part of American democracy, spaces mm-hmm. where people from all portions of life can gather like
0: parks and libraries and public schools. But also important in terms of insurrection, also important in terms <laughs> yeah. of protest and you know Definitely. massive gatherings and becoming... Mm. A a collective, yeah.
1: So, are there mass, are there massive gatherings going on in New York right now? I, I've been out of the newsfold. The
0: what's big significant on? thing is what's happening in Seattle. What's going oh, on yeah. in Seattle? There's a six-block area that's been declared an autonomous zone. There's a police precinct there which has been uh, occupied, you know, which has taken over, and that would seem to me significant and, and I know, heard that there
2: were, I've heard that there were a bunch of these autonomous zones in different cities. Mm-hmm. I I'm don't I don't know much about them. The only thing I saw about the I got to embarrassedly admit I saw Tucker Carlson's, you know, report on the Capitol Hill on Chaz it's called Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And you know he made it look pretty insane. Apparently there's armed guards at the at the edges of it, like guys with submachine guns that talk to you, you know, check you out before they let you in. Uh huh.
1: I remember all of the right wing coverage of Zuccotti Park and Occupy Wall Street. Oh yeah. There was always like an image of some crystal meth head, you know, um, <laughs> spinning. <laughs> Spinning around in frenetic circles. Just I went to...
0: there with my uh, most assuredly beloved life partner and our two daughters. And we slept the night in Zuccotti Park. Nice. Yeah, and it was uh, fun, you know. We just slept on some cardboard with some blankets and things. Yeah. <laughs> it's great.
1: I'm going to keep an eye on what's happening in Seattle. And I'm also going to do some research into whether... Any of that
0: autonomous zone is named after Lafayette? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, the Lafayette right? autonomous zone. That would statistically be a
1: chance.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, but, you know, I think right now the Lafayette Square has been opened up, but um I yeah, like the Lafayette autonomous zone. Yeah. Maybe could occupy the space in which Black Lives Matter is written.
2: Oh, in Lafayette Park, I mean. Uh,
0: Yeah, 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 sort of catty-corner to Lafayette, pointing toward the White House.
2: There was a really big demonstration last Sunday in front of Brooklyn Museum. It looked to me like maybe 50,000 people in uh, favor of black trans rights, which I think is pretty exciting.
1: Yeah, definitely. Power to the people.
2: Yeah.
1: We live in the the land of the free. Everyone should be able to. Everyone should be able to flourish in terms of their identity expressions.
2: And I've been watching this uh, recent interview with Angela Davis. Oh yeah, Uh, I saw some of those. Yeah, where she was talking about the importance of trans rights. I mean, she's kind of an amazing, like a, I don't know, like a sage of revolution. And she said uh, black trans women are the most oppressed of all people in the country. They are the ones receiving the fullest brunt of racism right now. It's so true, so logical, and yet I haven't heard anyone say it. And, you know, people have, you know, trepidation about trans rights, even leftists in many cases. And she's, you know, well, I don't know if she's still in the communist party. I don't know if there still is a communist party, but she's a person who's able to be a Marxist, be a feminist, be a, a, a defender of African-American rights and understand the importance of trans rights. You know, it's, it's, and it's I,
0: rare. And I think a full professor at University of California, Davis. Is, oh, is that what she was? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, she's a real professor. Kind of thinks like a professor, um, but that's beautiful. I agree, man. That is the uh, the leading wedge, you know, and the and the people who are suffering the most. I think that's great point. Thank you.
2: Yeah. So so can I finish my uh, discourse yeah. here about Lafayette? So we had said that Lafayette was killed. No, Lafayette's father was killed by the English in the Seven Years' War when Lafayette was two. But I looked it up on Wikipedia and actually, according to Wikipedia, Lafayette was less than one when his father was killed. And I was thinking, I wonder if we could have like a whole Freudian theory of Lafayette. You know, imagine losing your father when you're an infant and what kind of uh, Oedipal relationship that would create, you know, because according to Freud, everyone has to go through the Oedipal stage that is the stage of where you kind of uh, want to kill your father and marry your mother if you are a man. And the electra stage is kind of the inverse if you're a woman. Your but mother,
0: oftentimes in sort of societies, you would be brought up by the servants. Actually, oh, right. You would have very little contact with your father, even with your mother. You know, you you would have nurses and... Then you would have ancillary sort of male in the staff that would sort of become your life tutors early in life, and then you know you'd actually have tutors, etc. Yeah, yeah, so a, not, not,
2: a series of surrogate uh, fathers and mothers perhaps,
0: but yeah, probably it's a little bit like the uh, in the Germanicus Tacitus, you know, he could, speaks of the Germanic society, and you wouldn't be raised by your parents. Oh, you know, I see. Just raised by your uncles and aunts you would be raised like one generation away or one dynamic away hmm. um and that 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 was very sustaining for the tribe because you were less identified. You know, oh, one of the issues in society is that we want our children to take over for us or do as well as us and all that. And that removed that impediment.
2: Didn't the Spartans have some similar kind of collective upbringing? I have a vague memory of that where you kind of grow up in kind of a version of the army.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting in terms of Plato's Republic, because Mm. Plato adopts that kind of model, and I think he realized that the Athenian system, he didn't have to realize. He was already, um, after 402, um, you know, the... bifurcation or the fragmentation of athenian society um you know he understood that the spartan model might have been useful and
2: i was reading the communist manifesto recently and marx i had forgotten he calls for the abolition of the family that's right just kind of uh in passing actually (laughs) i don't know he doesn't seem to suggest it's very unclear what would replace the family
1: some kind of local associations right i have a recollection. Some
0: communal upbringing
1: yes something
2: like that like a kibbutz maybe
0: yeah well, you know very much like tacitus and, and i think a way, that's a very simple solution to one of the things that really keeps people in your work circle um andrew From like freeing up the purse strings and understanding, you know, there's nothing to hand on, you know, I'm handing on to, you know, I'm giving back to society very much like Elizabeth Warren was saying, you know, that I've gotten a tremendous amount from this system, but I also need to give back and and I need to replenish the soil.
2: And the Communist Manifesto also abolishes all uh, inheritance. So it explicitly uh, solves that problem. I mean, in a way, communism is kind of re-tribalization. People started out, as far as we can tell, in tribes. They didn't have the nuclear family, you know, for the first million years or however long it was. And uh, it's fairly relatively recently, the the nuclear family. And then under socialism, I think uh, Marx is thinking there will be something closer to a kind of
0: re-tribalization. Well, I don't, I don't think that it's possible to transfer those same values to an industrial civilization. Mm. But who's to say that it would, might not be possible in a post industrial civilization?
2: Yeah. I'm, sl- I'm, reading machines, uh, <laughs> I'm reading this book by I'm reading this book by McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, and he seemed to think. That uh, just by watching television, we were like re tribalizing ourselves. Like there was a new way of thinking, the technology changes the consciousness, and therefore, people are going to live in a global village and start mm-hmm. thinking like tribes people. And then the hippies appeared to prove his theory uh, or perhaps theories came after the hippies. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I definitely have watched my children be tribalized via television. Yeah, no doubt. And And I would posit one thing relative to Lafayette is that he was keenly aware of publicity and marketing as an integral part component of the public life, dedicated oh. to transformational change. Oh, he, right. for example, with Benjamin Franklin, had planned out a, I think a 32-page book or booklet, and they there are various mock-ups of this book, in which the English are characterized as dogs as rapists huh. as torturers etc like these very super duper graphic images that then, actual you know, actual would,
2: like artwork
0: yeah actual artwork and like pure propaganda which huh. would be disseminated through the you know east coast of what we call now the united states huh. to foment allegiance to the revolution and later on in life all the time he was very aware of how he looked portraits um different things he wrote uh good connections with media with newspapers etc and that was relative that was a little bit unique actually like benjamin franklin as a publisher was very aware of it but i think that there was still this sense of of entitlement you know, and that nobility were entitled and didn't have to hustle. Oh, I see.
2: But when I was studying uh, Lincoln, it seemed like Lincoln was kind of obsessed with the iconography of uh, Washington, you know, who by that point, by the point, you know, he's born in 1809 and grows up, you know, uh, in the twenties and thirties, like uh, Washington, there was a whole kind of mythology, visual mythology of Washington you know, all over the place, you saw images of him. And I think Washington was kind of conscious of trying to look like this stoic Roman that he imagined he was.
0: Well, the one thing I would say is that Lafayette was actually crucial in identifying and propagating the portrait of George Washington, which most people associate with, which Uh was made by a guy named Peel. Oh, E-A-L-E. Yeah. And and so Lafayette was actually part of that Washington mania.
1: Washington may have needed some of that because uh, the the Americanist friend of mine, who I mentioned last podcast, did a bunch of original research in Naples. And one of the things that he was researching was um, George Washington's. No, I'm sorry. A bunch of southern Italian from the kingdom of Naples Mm. political emissaries were sent to Washington, D.C., where they met with President Washington and described Mm. him in a very striking way as someone with a very high voice, a (laughs) a very large derriere and man breasts. (laughs) I want to see that
2: uh, photograph. I want to see that painting.
1: And that it really struck the Italian emissaries so much so that they wrote dispatches back to their home government, um, explaining the phenomenon of Washington's body.
2: Maybe he was trans.
1: Well, yeah, I, I was thinking I wasn't going to say that,
2: but. Perhaps he was. Maybe that's, that's the word politically but in the, incorrect.
0: But in the sartorial habits of the time, I'm not sure you could necessarily be able to penetrate to, like, this breast area that you would notice that he had man breasts. <laughs> his, body maybe, was, his body was described as very feminine. Uh, yeah. but, it's but interesting because he was very tall. He was, relative to the time, I think he was six feet tall. Yeah. And that was considered to be, you know... At the upper thresholds of, you know, male height. But he never it has. Doesn't
1: kids. matter one way or another because we're all born with inalienable rights, and anyone can be a hero or a warrior, right? Uh-huh. No matter what they look like.
2: But the image that I'm we have you, of dude. Washington. I mean, very, I.
1: Yeah, well, there was a discrepancy there, but maybe that's always the case, right? Napoleon as well.
0: It's interesting to posit the proposition that. George Washington was transgender. <laughs> I, th- I think, well, you know, he didn't have any children.
2: Right.
1: So I think it's possible that he might, might have been um, someone with Kleinfelter syndrome.
2: What's that?
1: Uh, it's an XXY male. It's um, like an a- interse- intersexual condition. And it's marked by tall bodies, wide middles, um, th- difficulty growing a beard, smaller testicles, and infertility. And they have both They have both genitals? No, they're, no. Genotypically, they're, they're male. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they have an so. X chromosome. But who knows? I'm speculating, obviously.
0: Well, it'd be fantastic <laughs> if the father of our country was also the mother of our country. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Maybe the mother of our country was the father of our country. Like when you read about Martha Washington, she was a tough character. She was the one always saying, you know, make sure you whip that slave. And, you know, if the slave ran away, like, make sure you catch him. Like, Washington was a little bit, he was really dubious about slavery. And not a mean guy. With slaves, with the soldiers, he was pretty cruel, actually. Continuing my uh, Freudian analysis of Lafayette, even though Sam shot me down earlier, I'm going to continue anyway, as if perhaps there is a mystical connection between the father and the child, even, or let's say a biological connection, even if, uh, as Sam is correctly saying, most likely he's brought up uh, in an aristocratic situation where he doesn't see his father very much. But let's just continue this theory. His father dies when he's less than one. His Oedipal complex is completely uh, wrecked. Because uh, it can't uh, continue in the normal, it can't flourish in the normal method, and then he's drawn to the Revolutionary War, which is a completely edible war. Because what is the war about? The war is let's kill the king who is our father, and let's marry Mother Earth, this uh, the mother, which is this land that we've been given in uh, you know here in America. We, uh, you know, let's let's uh, copulate with the land and uh, destroy the father. And uh, Lafayette is drawn into this and, uh, you know, becomes a big success at it. <laughs> that's my whole point, really. Ah, uh-huh. oh, that's a good point. Uh, there's a whole field called psychohistory. Yeah, I know. I have a magazine from the... I have the Journal of Psychohistory from, like, 1996. Uh... I, used to, I used to work for a
1: psychohistorian, this guy, a psychiatrist by the name of Robert J. Lifton. Is he like, famous? Yeah, he was a big figure in psychohistory, a protege of, of Eric Erickson, uh, part huh. of a group called the Wellfleet Group that did psychohistory. But they, they're always arguing that psychological
2: motivations factored into political movements. and. I read some essay in the New York press, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, about there was a kind of like a, you know, idiot's guide to psychohistory. It said uh, a new president is elected and then they have what they call a honeymoon period where the, the whole country falls in love with them. Didn't quite happen with this particular president. But anyway, and then... After about six months, eight months, a year, two years, there's a disenchantment. People lose their, their they, they fall out of love with the president. And at that point, the president has to basically start a war to uh, re-energize the love affair between the, the populace and, and himself. And This was like supposedly a theory of psychohistory. But that's not what your guy was talking about.
1: Um, no, I think it was just that internal psychological motivations play no small role in the decisions that leaders make. Oh. And, and to make as if it's purely objective or rational or product of um, logos is missing the point that whatever's happening below always mm. factors into our behavior and thought patterns and
0: our uh, emotions, especially if we're in positions of leadership. I would totally agree that we'd be better off being governed by the algorithm. <laughs> and But, you know, at the same time, I, I wanted to circle back also to you, Sparrow, and the thesis that we were f- falling in love or, you know, wanted a relationship with nature. Yeah, I think I think that's always been very complicated and that many of the initial settlers of the colonies etc may have sensed in nature you know something more complicated you know they considered it you know something the wild the wilderness and that there was both something compelling and also repulsive
2: about yeah i mean that. i i'm not saying that uh, people were in love with nature i, I don't th- i think nature the concept of being a nature lover started after the Industrial Revolution, and since it's a kind of fake uh, nostalgia for some earlier era. You know, yeah. you read Chaucer or any era where people are actually in harmony with nature, nobody likes nature uh, no. when they're, when it's surrounding them. But It's only once it's gone that people uh, think it's beautiful, literally beautiful.
0: But within this sort of recent phase of human history, you know, not going back to when we were synonymous with nature and had a very different way of being with ourselves and with what is.
2: Yeah, I mean, the tribal people, as far as we know, seem to be in harmony with nature. But I think there's different opinions on that. I mean, some, some, I've read people saying that the Native Americans, uh, you know, chased the mastodon, killed all the mastodons, killed all the big uh, mammals. You know, I, I I'm I worry that we idealize their relationship with nature. I, I have no idea; it's a mystery. But I do think that the the founders of this country were obsessed with the land. And they wanted the land. They wanted a lot of it. You know, they wanted to own it. And they wanted to do stuff to it. Wanted, I mean, that's, yeah. that's what they I mean by marrying the, Mother Nature.
1: They wanted the resources right. of the land. Mother Earth. Well, yeah, big, I guess the, they the wanted... a big
2: real estate scam, right? Yeah. It's like, basically, they've been gentrifying this country since about 1612 or something.
0: Uh-huh. You're right, that right, right, right. Now
2: is, is what... You know, that's what our friend Peter Lamborn Wilson and other radical historians, you know, define the uh, American Revolution as basically all about real estate. You know, pretty much all the guys that were in it, that's what Peter said, I think, last time I saw every single one, even uh, Benjamin Franklin, who seemed pretty serene and kind of scientific and uh, objective and was very anti-slavery. You know, all of them were land speculators, you know, and the British were against land speculation. That's what the
0: French and Indian War is about. Land speculation or some kind of commercial mafia or syndicate (laughs) operation. I think that is true. I think if you include both those, you've sort of covered it, actually.
2: Well, and and, uh, Washington, of course, was a surveyor. Yeah, right. You know he was intimately involved. He had his—he speculated in land himself. I think somewhat uh, considerably. So the British, after the deal with, they made a deal with after the French and Indian War. We're not gonna keep expanding our colonies. And why did the British need to expand the colonies? They've got—they're making money the way it is, and they don't want to have more wars with the French. But the the Americans were like. We want it all. We want manifest destiny. I think they already had the concept of manifest destiny—that we have to, you know, inhabit the whole goddamn continent. Uh, they had it from the beginning.
0: One attribute that Lafayette would have found incredibly compelling would be the youthful aspects of America. You know, again, he was 19 years old. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's an important aspect that connects it to our time now um you know and again you know lafayette i just feel like he's has some talismanic value you know, and you know, this you know, quotation, you know, quotation i love this quotation you know, great. many thanks for joining us on this edition of baffling combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.